Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. You're listening to You're listening to You're listening to Hello curious people. Welcome back to Yellow, a podcast from Design It, put together by the very people who work there. I'm your host Phil and one of those people. You're listening to Yellow. This episode is all about equality and a lot more. And I'd like to get personal for a second. If you were to ask me 10 years ago what diversity, equity and inclusion, DEI or D&I as it's sometimes called, if you were to ask me what that looked like in the workplace, I wouldn't have an answer worth you listening to right now. It's not that I don't believe in it. Like many of you, I've been brought up to treat people equally. The issue is, I didn't quite wrap my head around just how much people aren't treated equally. In workplaces, in society, in leadership, in the justice system, and all the rest. Part of this comes down to me being a white, middle-aged male living in Europe. Uncomfortable as it is to consider, I'm privileged in different and collected ways. Unconsciously or not, I simply haven't been exposed to the same experiences as those who are not like me. I am, by virtue of my nationality, my ethnic identity, my sex and gender identity, part of the group that represents the most power and control in society. That's why I say I'm also part of the most privileged group. Society as we know it was, by and large, built in the image of those like me. It's sad, really. Making this podcast with the guests we've featured so far has opened my eyes to this. Working with smart people at Design It with actual knowledge about DEI has also given my awareness a rocket boost. None of this happened overnight. Do things ever really happen overnight? It's by talking, training, questioning, and most importantly, listening, I've learned and become aware to so much and to so many. I've also realised... I'm not alone. Maybe you felt the same. Maybe you're even on the same path. Maybe you're a leader looking to not only learn about equality, but do something about it in your workplace. If so, this episode is for you. You're listening to Yellow. Someone who'll definitely open your eyes and ears to why equality is needed in the workplace is Michelle King. Michelle's an expert on gender equality and organisational culture and has decades of her own research to back it up. This quote is from Michelle's website, which sums up her beliefs nicely. We all deserve the freedom to be ourselves at work and to be valued for this. Together, let's fix workplaces so that they work for everyone. I like that a lot. 
It also makes sense because Michelle works with leaders to build workplace cultures that thrive, especially as the founder of Equality Forward, but also in her role with the UN Foundation's Girl Up campaign, as director of inclusion at Netflix, and as head of UN Women's Global Innovation Coalition for Change. In fact, Michelle's been building towards the achievement of gender equality and women's empowerment internationally for over two decades. I meant what I said. Prepare for those ears and eyes to be opened. You're listening to Yellow. Coming up in this episode, Michelle will share the current state of equality from her point of view. You'll also hear how you can become a leader in a community of like-minded people, what leadership based on diversity and equality should look like, and what is holding leaders back, with plenty of actions you can take yourself. As a side note, this episode, as with the others, features our guests' own personal and professional opinions. Hopefully, you can use them as a springboard to form your own. And the conversation was recorded remotely, so there may be the odd background noise you'd normally associate with having a virtual chat. As always, we hope it brings you that little bit closer to things. So let's get going. First up, with so much of her work focusing on leaders, I wanted to hear how Michelle describes herself as a leader and when she first realised she was an advocate for equality. You're listening to Yeah, I've never thought of myself as a leader. Whenever somebody asks me, you know, about my work and why it matters and I guess questions like this, like how I feel myself, I really always say the same thing, which is I'm the real deal in the sense that I love my work. I'm 100% committed to advancing women into leadership positions. And it's not just a personal commitment. It's a bit deeper than that. For me, this is a core part of who I am. So I'm an advocate first and foremost, which means I spend a lot of time trying to be a substantive expert to really understand all the research that's out there, to really understand what you know, the problem is that we're trying to solve for what solutions for work and what meaningful actions can take place. And this shows up in literally every aspect of my work now. So I have my own consultancy. And the first thing that I did is I went out there and spent my white privilege and hired two racial and ethnic minority women and gave them shares in my business. Because for me, this is a part of getting not only the most talented people into my business, but more importantly, being very conscious that equality begins with me. And that's just one example. I mean, in literally every aspect as to how I'm building the business, you know, I'm trying to learn how I can do this better, how we can come up with a new way of working, how we can build a culture of equality, even in a small business, and how I can choose clients who really want to do this work. I've got no interest in working with organizations that, you know, just paying lip service to this. So for me, I really do believe we can have organizations, we can develop organizations that create environments where people can be themselves and be valued for that. But for me, it starts with every single one of us really owning that. And so absolutely, as a leader, I would say, look, I'm an advocate first and foremost. I live my work. And it's a core part of my identity and, and my values. I've worked in sort of for-profit organizations, large multinationals. I've done a range of roles, had a sort of really varied experience. So for me, throughout that, I was looking, like most people are, for a meaningful role, right? I wanted something where I could use the skills I have to make an impact. And 
for me, that's really the key in all of this is I started to follow the breadcrumbs of curiosity. I don't think anybody wakes up one day saying, I'm super passionate about tech. That's just not how this works. You follow the breadcrumbs of curiosity, things you're interested in, and you start paying attention to your environment. You start to see different problems and think of solutions and do the work to research and understand the issues and the landscape. And then what happens is that becomes this sort of self-reinforcing you know, mechanism that comes out in your life where the more you're interested, the more you're investing in it, the more interested you get, the more you invest in it, the more you become an expert, and then the more interested, you know, so it's just this perpetual cycle until one day you wake up and you're a global thought leader in your discipline. You know, and it's not without a lot of hard work, but I know it's this sort of, it's a bit cliche, but it's true for me, like, this is not work. I love this. Like, I live and breathe it. I mean, I, I read journal articles on inequality and organizations on holiday. This is, you know, something I just really love. I love the topic, but it started with a break and I think the other thing I'd say to anyone who wants to find their passion is pay attention to what has heart and meaning in your life. When I was researching this topic, I was just interested in it. This was about eight years ago now as part of my PhD. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this. I might just start researching it before I even undertake a PhD. And I was working for UN Women at the time, and I got invited to speak at a conference. Now, I was new to America. I really didn't know anything about this conference. And I had two babies at the time, so I, I just rocked up to this event. And it turned out to be one of the largest conferences for women in America. 17,000 attendees. It had like Michelle Obama. It had Sheryl Sandberg. And here I was sharing some preliminary research findings on why we don't need to fix women. We need to fix workplaces and what that really meant. And it was very, very counterintuitive at the time because lean in this whole idea that women need to do more or be more to advance at work was extremely popular. So getting up there and sharing this message, I was really nervous because I walked into this massive audience, had Brene Brown, absolute thought leaders. And anyway, I delivered the message, sweating, handshaking. I come off the stage, panicked, you know, about how I had performed and this woman comes up to me at the end of the session to introduce herself and she looked really upset. You know, she had sort of tears in her eyes and her face was red and I thought, oh my goodness, what did I say? And uh, she puts both hands on my shoulders and looks at me really intensely and says, I'm going to put on my wall at work what you said. And I said, what did I say? And she said that I don't need to be fixed, you know, that I'm good enough just as I am. And so I always get emotional talking about that because... I could see the pain in this woman's eyes, you know, that no one had ever told her she was enough and that she goes to work every day in an environment where the entire workplace is rigged, you know, policies, processes, practices, culture, it's all rigged to support one type of worker to succeed. And the message to her is you don't fit in, you're not good enough, and even if you try to fit in, you're never going to be good enough and there's nothing you can do about that. And here was somebody for the first time that was saying to her, forget leaning in, forget all that. It's not you, it's your workplace. And when you start to see that, you free yourself from this need to try and be something that you're not. And you step into your difference and you own your difference and it becomes your superpower. And so that was, <coughs> sorry, I'm, got, I'm crying here, but that was such an emotional moment for me because I realized in that moment, I had to become the advocate. I had to step into the role. I had to say the thing nobody was saying and share the insights I had. I had to use my skills as a researcher to share exactly what the problem is we're trying to solve for and really help women understand that it really isn't them. 
and they can give up all the efforts on fixing themselves and start to see things for what they are, which will allow us to step into our strengths and own that. And I think when women do that, powerful things happen. So for me, that was the moment that I think definitely sealed the deal, if you like, in terms of my work in this area and my commitment to to sharing the story. Now, Michelle mentioned Lean In, the book by Sheryl Sandberg. I'm curious what has changed since that came out with the ideas it was promoting for women. How are leaders now leading with equality in mind? How aware are they? In fact, what is the state of equality today? And for any leaders or aspiring leaders listening, there are some tips on how you can play an active role. I think how we achieve equality which is really an environment both at home and in our workplaces where we can be ourselves and be valued for that. That's my definition of equality. It's the freedom. So equality is freedom. It's a freedom to be yourself and to be valued for that. So whether that's at home or whether that's at work, that freedom comes through a sort of three-step process, right? It, It comes through awareness of inequality, awareness of the challenges people face, awareness of differences, And then a deep understanding, which is the second piece, as to how this plays out in your life. So it's one thing to be aware and to understand the concept of gender pronouns, for example, or to understand terms like intersectionality. And, you know, it's one thing to understand some of these terms in the space. Sorry, to be aware of these terms, but it's quite another to understand how does this play out in my life? How can I start to think about the ways in which these concepts show up every day in my workplace, show up every day in my home, in my community? And I think without that understanding, it's incredibly difficult to know when to take action. It's also difficult to know what moments you need to pay attention to. It's hard to know, you know, how do you show up at work in a way that's inclusive? How do you lead in a way that's inclusive? What are the systems and processes in your workplace that need to be designed for difference and rewired to support, you know, this culture of equality or an environment that really values difference? So, so what are the ways in which we need to be thinking about this? And taking that action requires the awareness and understanding. You know, I was dealing with the leader the other day who said to me, I feel very aware and very informed. And I was like, yes, that's normally the starting point of this work. The problem is people stop there. They don't then take that awareness and think about how to apply that in their workplace to understand how this is showing up. The challenge is it requires work. It requires individuals to do the work to really build the awareness in a way that can help translate into understanding. So for example, if you're a leader and you think you have interesting conversations at home about inequality, you watch the news, you might listen to one or two podcasts, and you might try and occasionally get to know people who don't look like you or ask their opinions, and you think, you know, I'm aware. I would argue that you're really not. You know, awareness is a practice. It's something that we have to do continually. I have had to broaden my awareness and understanding of all areas of difference, and I continually do that. I renew my awareness continually. People think it's a one-off effort, and they tick some magical box, and suddenly they're aware, or they, what do Americans say? They're woke. And that's not the real work. The real work is an ongoing commitment to deepen your awareness of, of these core issues. And then this is the hard bit, to think about, how you contribute to the inequality you've learned about. So there's this wonderful quote, I forget by who now, but to be anti-racist, you have to tackle and own your racist beliefs, right? And I think that's a great example, and that extends to everything. To be anti-sexist, you have to tackle your sexist beliefs. So there's this, yes, you may be aware of anti-racism and even aware of racism, but are you willing to do the work to own your beliefs around that or your behaviors around that or your lack of action that enables that? 
right now I'm coaching a whole bunch of leaders on exactly this topic. If you're going to commit to this journey of equality, which is really just fundamentally good leadership, you are going to own and take accountability for the inequality that people in your team experience. It's funny you think about what I just said. So the day-to-day inequality that people in your team experience, you need to take accountability for. And you do that by investing in your continual education to develop your awareness. So disrupt your denial. You know, we're all in denial to some extent about inequality. Your workplace is not a meritocracy. It doesn't work for everybody in the same way. Everyone who works for you is not just an employee. They're an individual with intersecting and different identities and difference in workplaces compounds inequality. So do you know and understand the barriers women face in workplaces? If not, can you become aware of them? And then can you take that awareness and sit with the people on your team and have conversations with them to understand how do these challenges show up in your workplace? For example, is there a performance tax that we know exists and we're aware that exists in academia for racial and ethnic minority women where they have to work twice as hard than their white counterparts to advance? And for white women, it's you know a similar thing, but just not to the same degree. Do you know how that's playing out in your performance reviews, in your promotion processes, in the decisions you make around allocating work? Are you asking black women in your organization to do more, be more than white women in order to advance it's a really simple example but it just shows you that pattern of once you have the awareness and you understand things like the performance tax are you then translating that into well how is that showing up my team and the only way you're going to know that is one education two is getting to know how inequality is showing up in your team meet with individuals have conversations within your team do the work to manage moments and pay attention to where some of these issues are likely to show up. And you're only going to know that if you invest in the education component. It's now time to do the work and to think about how am I showing up in my workplace that enables what I've just learned about to take place. So for white women who are listening to this, quick example is, do you know the challenges of racial and ethnic minority women experience? Are you taking action every day to be an ally, to call out the inequality moments when you're ignored, devalued, dismissed in in meetings, you know, to actually reckon with that? Any of those microaggressions, how are you showing up for your colleagues? Michelle mentioned that she's currently coaching leaders. So if leaders acknowledge that their level of awareness is fairly high, which is the start of their journey from what I understand, how afraid are they to address vulnerability? That vulnerability that comes from accessing the different realities of people and the differences that they bring. And come to think of it, it's human to worry. Insulting someone, being judged or being shamed for not doing or saying the right thing. Here's Michelle's take on it. So one of the ways in which we demonstrate our understanding is to talk through what it means to us. And to do that, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and you have to be willing to connect and then lead. And so a lot of leaders right now are feeling really intimidated with this topic, feeling out of their depth, wishing it would just go away and someone in the DNI team would take charge and failing to see that this is actually a core part of leadership. You know, quality is an invitation for leaders to lead, to get to know the challenges their employees are facing, to remove those barriers, to enable talent to thrive, to enable difference to thrive, to manage diversity, to coach, to provide feedback, to support their employees, enable them 
to be effective just as they are. And to do that, to harness the value of difference requires effective leadership. There's a great HBR study that shows Yes, diverse teams are more effective, but to realize that effectiveness requires leadership. So how do you do this? How do you demonstrate it? My thing is it's sort of a three-point plan. I think the starting point is what I call reflexivity. When George Floyd, when that situation happened, irrespective of where you were around the globe, it was a meaningful reckoning, a moment we had to all witness around racism. And what was missing for me in the way a lot of leaders and corporations responded is they didn't take a minute to reflect which is what we call reflexivity, to reflect on what that moment meant to them. And as a result, it was really difficult when they showed up to work and invited their teams to talk about this issue and invited their teams to share how they felt to come across as authentic because they had not done any of the work to think about, well, what does this mean to me? And how does this affect me as a leader? And how do I need to show up for my people? And what are the ways in which, you know, this really demonstrates to me, maybe I need to do more. Maybe I haven't been doing enough. And am I willing to own that with my team? And so leaders feel like they need to come in and lead in what I call this 1950s way of leading, a command and control and the all-powerful, all-knowing leader. And that model doesn't work today. It barely worked for us in the 1950s, and it absolutely doesn't work for us today. You know, to manage issues like global racism and global sexism and core issues we're grappling with, you have to be able to invite your team to share how is this showing up in the workplace and let employees know you're there for them if they want somebody to talk to and that this means something to you. And to do that, you know, you've got to understand how you feel about it. So the first piece is when these incidents happen as a leader, reflect on you, your leadership, what this means to you, and then to share that with your team. So you cannot invite particularly racial and ethnic minority employees to a conversation and say, tell us what this means to you. No, absolutely not. If you're a white employee, think about what it means to you. What does this racist moment mean to you? You know, racism is created by white people. It's solved by white people. So we need to really think about what do these moments mean to us? And I think not enough of us do that. So once you know that, you then need to share that. So this is the bit where leaders get stuck. So you're in a meeting and you're feeling uncomfortable. You're feeling unsure. You're not sure if you've done enough. Tell your team that. You will get so many points if you own it. So that second piece is really how do you own your feelings around the issue? How do you own how George Floyd made you feel? And when you own it, think about what you're prepared to do differently. What actions are you going to take? How does this help you really think about your leadership? Are you doing enough? And what else could you do? And then commit to that with your teams. And so for me, that is really the approach to it. Doing the work. People are tired of the talk. They're tired of the corporate speak. They're tired of the commitments. That mean nothing. We need our leaders as individuals to share what they are personally willing to do, not just some broad corporate speak. I hope there's a lot there to get you started. Reflecting on the issue, owning it, then committing to change. Or at least being prepared to acknowledge what changes you'd like to be making. But leaders aside, what about the members of diverse teams, the individual contributors? What can you do as a member of a team to support the work in this agenda? Michelle mentioned the killing of George Floyd as an example. During critical moments like that, how do you show up in your workplace for black employees? 
think about what that means to you. Think about, are you doing enough? Think about what you're prepared to do differently. And can you commit to that and step into the discomfort? Share the areas that maybe you didn't know. Share the ways in which this has woken you up, the things you've learned about, the how you feel. Don't center yourself in the emotional side. Like, you know, there's this fine, delicate balance of doing those three steps versus like in a meeting, starting to cry and making it all about you. You know, for me, again, that's very performative. That's not the real work. The real work is to say, I've thought about this. This is what it means to me. These are the areas taken away from this and recognize I need to do more. And here's what I'm willing to commit to do. And so I think every single one of us should do that. And not just when something horrific happens. You know, for me, this should be an ongoing process of thinking about it. You know, that's what people want to see, a real commitment to action. Michelle, in her work, has zoomed in on gender as the main driver of the inclusion and diversity conversation. By applying the lens of gender inequality and equity and inclusion at work, she's demonstrated that it's affecting men and women differently in the work. So why is gender the focal point and how does it play out? There's a number of reasons I start with gender. Firstly, if you look at the history of inequality, patriarchy was really the sort of founding father of all forms of inequality. So using our sex and using gender, which is a construct, like it's an idea that society came up with for how men and women are meant to behave, using both of those as differentiators and ways in which we value you know, masculinity or femininity, less than or more than, just depending on how you look at it. This was the starting point for taking an individual difference and using that to devalue certain individuals. You know, that history of this being the lens by which we start to differentiate between people. I thought, you know, if we can tackle this, we can tackle all forms of inequality. And in particular, for me, what's been an area of interest has been the way in which sort of gender and race intersect and create new forms of inequalities. And so for me, you know, if you start with the most marginalized, the most discriminated against groups and organizations, and you solve for that, you then solve for everything by default. And so wanting to tackle inequality, I started with gender. But if you are an intersectional researcher, which you have to be if you're looking at equality, you really are looking at all forms of discrimination, not just one, because you're trying to understand the way in which the inequality shows up differently for all individuals and everybody's different. So this is really taking that intersectional thinking and applying it to my work has allowed me to look at all areas of difference. Time out. Let's pause for a second. That word intersectionality. I sometimes hear new terms like that and wonder what they mean. Maybe you're the same, or maybe it's just me. Either way, I need to know what is meant by intersectionality. So intersectionality was a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, who came up with this idea essentially for black women about how gender and race intersect. So if you literally think of an intersection on a road, you know, intersect to create a new experience of inequality. That's essentially what it is. Because in organizations, you can have sexism, you can have racism, you can have inequality stemming from both of those. But what happens when they come together and create or compound inequalities in organization? You know, just 
theoretically, it's a wonderful way of thinking about how difference creates different experiences of inequality. And so I always say, you know, to apply intersectional thinking is to think about the individual. So sit down with someone and think about who they are. What are their different identities? And what are the ways that those different identities come together to create different experiences of inequality? So, you know, every individual is different. And getting to know the people on your team and understanding the challenges they face starts with seeing the person. And I think intersectional thinking is an incredibly important lens for understanding difference. Okay, let's jump back into equality and inclusion in the workplace. How is it affecting men and women differently? And what form does does it take? So the starting point for all inequality in organizations is what we call the success prototype or the idea of what good looks like when it comes to leadership, when it comes to being an employee. So research finds in most organizations consistently, you know, when we think of what good looks like, we're going to think of that what I call success prototype. So it's somebody who's white, middle class, heterosexual, able-bodied and male. But more importantly than the demographic characteristics, it also tends to be someone who's willing to engage in dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, exclusionary sort of behaviors someone who's willing to make work the number one priority. And the problem is, if that's the ideal standard in organizations, leaders lead in a way that reinforces that. So leadership looks like that. And that encourages employees to behave in that way. And pretty soon you've got an entire workplace culture, which is the lived experience, right? The day-to-day behaviors that create our lived experiences of organizations. And so the problem is, the more ways that you differ from the ideal or that success prototype, the more barriers you're likely to encounter not just on demographics, also in terms of behavior. So the reason this creates challenges for men uh, in a way that's different from women is for women, obviously, we don't have our gender in common. If you're racial and ethnic minority women, you also don't have your race in common. And the list can go on and on, right, by how many different ways that you differ from the ideal. And when we try and be more stereotypically masculine, so that dominant, assertive, aggressive, you know, we're defying standards for what good looks like for women. And we get penalized, so we're seen as less likable. Because for women in society to be likable, you have to be meek, mild, and unassuming, right? So women face this trade-off between being seen as competent or likable, and it's impossible. And so for women, this plays out in a whole different bunch of ways. But the basis of it is we devalue women and femininity in organizations. So anything associated with being a woman is seen as less than. And as a result, we devalue women. So that's for women. But for men, it was very interesting. So I always feel like I owe men an apology because, you know, when I was looking at this model and the way in which it worked, I assumed it worked for men and I was wrong. And as a researcher, I'm always willing to admit I'm wrong. And it was through some series of talks I gave and in chatting with men, I realized something's not right here. And I went back into my data set and spent about six to 12 months just researching the challenges men faced and realized very quickly the assumption that the model works for men is not true. It's this double whammy. It's not just being a good leader. It's also what it means to be a man. And so for men to really support gender equality, they have to redefine what it means to be a man. Being a man shouldn't simply be tied to being somebody who is the hero, who never shows emotion, who never shows fear, who's dominant, who's assertive, who's aggressive. You know, men need a different way. They need the freedom to show up differently because that style of leading might have served us in the 1950s when everybody looked the same. 
but it doesn't serve us today, particularly in a COVID world, and it won't serve you in the future. You know, a more inclusive, democratic, what we call transformational way of leading is more effective. And so men need the freedom if they want to survive and thrive today and in the future world of work to demonstrate different leadership capabilities. That doesn't penalize them to be seen as not manly or not masculine. I know so many women who really behave in that way. That's sort of the message and the the questions that I get asked consistently. And it's absolutely true, this idea that white women or all women, you know, can't be racist or can't be sexist is, is ludicrous. Like the reality is we can uphold the patriarchy or white supremacy just as much as anybody else. And I think... The challenge for women is that, you know, we never really got an opportunity to define leadership on our own terms. So we never really thought about, hey, how do we want to lead? Because our workplaces were so busy telling us, A, this is the standard, B, you don't fit it, and C, you need to lean in and do more to try and fit it. But guess what? You're never going to fit it because by default, you know, you are not the prototype. And I think for women who sell their souls, you know, it's an incredibly lonely journey. You might make it into sort of senior leadership team, but research finds you're going to be isolated. And I just want to make a really quick point because it's really important. I want to make sure I'm being clear on this. I'm not saying that we need to work in a work environment where we're all suddenly adopting more feminine norms. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every single person listening to this podcast deserves the freedom to be themselves and to be valued for that. There might be situations where you need to be assertive. You need to be dominant. There might be situations where you need to be empathetic and you need to be caring and you need to be able to display the judgment and have the freedom to really respond to your environment in a way that is most effective. And that's the problem we have today. We have men who are silenced, who don't speak up, who feel bullied, who don't talk about their mental health issues, who don't talk about the challenges and pressure of having to be the breadwinner. And it results in things like depression, in suicide, in alcoholism. And that is because they don't feel free to be themselves. We need a better model where there's not this heavy price to pay for making it to a leadership role. We need to give people this freedom. And guess what? It actually results in better business outcomes. So that for me is really the goal with all of this. I like the idea of freedom of leadership, but you could say there hasn't been a lot of opportunity for leaders to enjoy that freedom over the last one to two years. But even before the pandemic, Leaders of organisations have been surrounded by perpetual chaos and transformation for a long time. After all, what is predictable about the business world? How did we get to where we are now with workplaces needing to be fixed? And are we still clinging on to repetitive patterns of habitual interactions? And if so, why? What is holding leaders back from making the leap into thriving? I mean, I call it ambidextrous leadership. That is the future of leadership. So let's just take one minute and think about COVID. So COVID came, we suddenly overnight had leaders had to manage a remote workforce that's extremely stressed, in some cases isolated, with challenges managing and integrating work and home life, with difficulties of having to work on their own to achieve outcomes and then collaborating in a virtual environment, dealing with emotional and mental load and stress. And how many leaders actually stopped and thought, how do I need to change my leadership style? Not many. How many organizations thought, hey, what are the skills we need to give our leaders to lead in in a different way? And what might that different way be? And so for me, this is the challenge is we haven't got to the place where we realize our environment is changing, whether we like it or not. COVID's just the first of a huge amount of disruption to come with technological advancements like AI, robotics, nanotechnology, the Internet of Things. 
60% of jobs are going to change in the next three to five years. And so to lead in a world of disruption requires that you can respond to your environment in the way that you see fit, which requires leaders who are willing to learn, who've got humility, who are curious, who can show up you know, on the emotional side, but who also have some of the skills on the transactional side to deliver results. So we need leaders who have that freedom, like the freedom is absolutely the key to effective leadership. In my research, I found that most leaders, and particularly white male leaders, would consistently say their workplace was a meritocracy, would consistently say that men and women have no different experiences of inequality, that workplaces work for everybody in the same way because everybody is the same. And actually, there are no additional barriers for women. So if women aren't succeeding, guess what? It's their fault. They've just got to try a bit harder, introduce, you know, incomes, Sheryl Sandberg with Lean In and the Fix the Women School of Thought, right? So that's how we end up there. Everything just stays the same. It's women. You need to fix yourself, sort it out. So in that environment, there's absolutely no accountability for the way in which the system's rigged. And that whole sort of structure, that perpetual denial of inequality, the denial of difference makes it impossible to solve the issue. Interestingly, this extends to race. So racial denial is a very well-established concept in the literature. The way in which we deny racism makes it impossible to solve. When someone comes to you and says, hey, that comment was a bit racist, and you say, no, it wasn't, and actually I'm offended that you told me that, and you need to now apologize to me for my racist comment. I mean, it makes somehow the racist behavior not as bad as the person highlighting the racist behavior. It's ridiculous. It makes it impossible to solve. And so, you know, the starting point for all of this is disrupting your denial. The starting point is recognizing the way in which this doesn't work for you. And DNI initiatives have failed on this. They've absolutely failed. So they've come in with things like targets. They've come in with things like unconscious bias training. So making people somewhat aware of the fact that they have these issues and biases, but then saying, don't worry, it's unconscious. You don't have to do anything about it anyway. And so research shows that makes things worse. And as a result, most of our initiatives when it comes to DNI, 63% of human resource professionals believe the DNI initiatives they have in place today, most of those typical ones around policies or process changes or training like DNI training are ineffective and so the challenges the solutions we put in place do nothing to disrupt denial and they do nothing to build understanding and they do nothing to enable people to take action and and change and without that model we're never going to get there so the starting point is disrupt your denial so a better workplace is a better workplace for everybody including you the link that's missing today is we don't recognize that leaders drive culture. Every day a leader gets to decide who's going to be on their team and if they're going to be valued. And that is the ultimate privilege. The ultimate privilege is to create an environment where people can be valued and to solve inequality that you yourself never have to experience. And so for me, the goal of white male leaders today is to own the culture they create. Their behavior sets the standard for everybody else. And so leaders are 100% accountable for cultures of inequality. And it's on that note that we have to wrap up the conversation. Just before we do, I'm curious to hear If we're to get a move on with fixing things, what critical skills are needed to cultivate and create equitable workplaces from Michelle's point of view? So in terms of the skills that I think that are helpful to practicing inclusion or being inclusive in terms of how you show up every day, 
The first thing I would say is be reflective. So take time out of your day to think about how inequality is showing up in your workplace, to think about your journey and understanding some of these issues. If there's an area you're uncomfortable with, lean into that and get to know it. So if it's things like privilege or if it's things like um, homophobia or things like ableism, any of these issues that you're uncomfortable with, reflect on that. Try and think about why that might be and then develop your awareness and understanding of some of these issues by, you know, reading, by listening to podcasts, by watching videos on experts. You know, there's so many resources that are freely available that you can start to educate yourself on difference. So that would be my first bit, you know, reflect. The second thing I would say is commit to leading with your one self. So what I mean by that is show up to work as you are and show up with your different identities. And look, that's much easier for people in privileged positions to do. And so if you're in a position of privilege, really try and start to own your identities, all your identities outside of work, own your differences, start talking about that and sharing that because that gives other people permission to do the same. The third piece I would say is focus on, you know, what has heart and meaning in your workplace. So think about the ways in which you can connect to your colleagues. If a major incident happens globally, don't just ignore it. You know, take time out to connect and then lead. You know, take time out to understand how people around you are feeling and experiencing inequality in your workplace. Invest in getting to know people who don't look like you. You know, spend time connecting with the people that you work with. The fourth thing I would say is really pay attention to the moments. So inequality is a lived experience. It shows up in the moments day to day, whether somebody's ignored or somebody's sort of devalued in a meeting or spoken over or has somebody steal their idea and pitch it in a meeting, which we know happens a lot to women. You know, call those moments out, manage the moments, pay attention to the moments that matter. And then finally, you know, be in service of others and recognize that by creating a more equal workplace, it serves to benefit you. To really take that action, you need to be able to finish the sentence, equality benefits me because, like, you need to be able to identify how it benefits you. Because once you can do that, then you can personally commit to the work. You make that connection to this work. You recognize that a more equal workplace allows me to be myself allows me to be valued for that. And that's ultimately going to make me more effective. So actually, by doing all of these other steps, I serve to benefit. And I think that's the step each of us have to take. You're listening to Thanks very much to Michelle for sitting down with us to share her thoughts on the role of equality in fixing workplaces. Perhaps some of what she said will spark an idea for you too, or at least feed the green shoots of improvement. If you'd like to find out more about Michelle and her work, we'll drop a website link or two in the show notes. Michelle has a podcast of her own too, which, believe me, is a great listen. As always, thanks to you for joining this episode. And a heads up, we're experimenting with Yellow as a podcast. We still want to feature the people you want to hear from and the topics you want to learn more about. But Yellow might do it in different ways. Whatever happens, do continue to get in touch with your suggestions. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast too, that's always appreciated. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Phil Hall, with help from Madeleine Newski, Padish Shafafi, Michal Zivi and Sophie Wilms-Hansen. I'd also like to say a big thanks to Guru Roberg for leading the original interview. And of course, this podcast wouldn't be complete without sound design, music and mixing. You and I have Jakob Vilkar to thank for that. 
There are more episodes on the way soon, but for now, this has been Yellow from Design It. See you next time. Enjoyed today's show? Please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.